0: When we think of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ on this earth, we think of peace, we think of prosperity, but we also think of a time of great healing, both nationally and individually, when the deaf and the dumb will hear and speak, the lame will leap like a deer, and the eyes of the blind will see. But have you ever considered the mechanism through which good health is going to be restored during the reign of Jesus Christ on this earth, the millennium? Obviously, there's going to be supernatural healing at the beginning of the millennium. Many people will be crippled because of uh, terrible accidents and uh, fighting and warfare that's going to go on. There's going to be blindness, perhaps because of nuclear explosions. And the scriptures tell us that there's going to be this great healing that takes place at the beginning of the millennium. And, of course, it isn't just the healing of the blind in a physical sense, but a spiritual sense as well. But does this mean that God is going to suspend His laws that govern good health? Well, today we're going to look at how we can have a world without diseases. The diseases that we have today, such as cancer, emphysema, diabetes, heart disease, SARS, the flu bug, and all the other diseases that we have today. I have seven points that I want to give you, that I'm going to give you, to show how God is going to bring good health to mankind for a thousand years. The first point is called the Bells of Edinburgh, Edinburgh being Scotland. In the mid-1800s, there were no flush toilets in Edinburgh or, for that matter, the rest of the world, at least as far as we know. So all human waste in Edinburgh was saved in buckets all day long. Then at 10 p.m. every evening, bells would start ringing, and that was a sign that everybody could take the buckets that had been collected during the day, all the human waste, and throw it out into the streets. And so, obviously, this was not a good place to take a romantic stroll at 10 o'clock in Edinburgh during that time. One can only imagine the flies the next day and the disease breeding ground the streets of Edinburgh became. Even to this day, sanitation in many parts of this world is no better. They have open sewers, or the rivers, the streams, the canals are the sewer systems for people. When we were in China back in 1984, you could see people using canals for waste products human wastes and at the same time people just downstream who are washing their vegetables sanitation in this world has not been god's way and as a result many diseases have come about in deuteronomy the 23rd chapter we look at one of the laws of god and god knew what man even to this day doesn't seem to understand and that is that human waste is a breeding ground for disease. In Deuteronomy 23, verse 12, it says, Also you shall have a place outside the camp where you may go out, and you shall have an implement among your equipment, and when you sit down outside, you shall dig with it and turn and cover your refuse. So God knew that if the children of Israel in the camp of Israel, when they came out of of Egypt, if they didn't have proper sanitation... If they did not cover their waste, that it would be a breeding ground and terrible diseases would go through the camp of Israel. It seems like a rather obvious point to us, but just imagine, as late as the 1800s, in the streets of one of the great cities of this world, it was just thrown out into the streets. It was not properly taken care of. In the same century, the city of London, I saw a special on this not long ago, the Thames River... Stung so badly that they realized they had to do something about it because of the stench of human waste. And so they finally, in the middle of the 1800s, built a sanitation system or a sewer system in the city of London. Another law of God that we sometimes implement, but too often we do not, is found in the book of Leviticus as well, or in the book of Leviticus, we're not there yet, But I would title this one, the second point, Unclean, Unclean. One of the major problems we have is that sick people do not isolate themselves from people who are not sick. In many cases, sick children don't have a home in which they can go home to or stay in when they're sick because both parents are out in the workforce and they can't get the time off or because a child grows up in a single-parent home Oftentimes the mother has to work. She's taken off days for any number of reasons, for sickness and so forth, and has no more sick time available. And so they send the kids to school. And the kids then get around other children, and other children are sick, and it's just one continuous cycle all through the year of sickness among children and the pain and the suffering that that is for those children. Leviticus 23 I'm sorry, Leviticus 13 tells us that the children of Israel were to isolate certain sicknesses that occurred there, especially leprosy. We don't know whether it was exactly the same kind of leprosy then as we have today. It may have been a milder form of of some type, but it speaks of leprosy in human beings and also in buildings, and it's kind of a broad general term. But there were... Laws here governing that they had to go to the priest, they had to be examined, and God was very specific about what was dangerous and what was not, what was what was able to be spread, what was contagious, and what was not and when someone had a, a type of leprosy that was uh, spreading kind something that could be spread to other people and verse 45 it says now the leper on whom the sore is his clothes shall be torn and his head bare and he shall cover his mustache and cry unclean unclean even there it says cover his mustache in other words cover his mouth so that uh, even his, uh, his voice or, or breathing would not be on any place else, but he was to cry out, unclean, unclean, and let people know, stay away from me because I'm contagious. He didn't maybe use that term. Obviously he didn't use that term. But that was the intent that God had to stop disease from spreading. Some years ago, not very many now, it's three or four years ago, there was a, a problem called SARS, a Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. And in Canada, it was a big deal. In the city of Toronto and the suburbs there, uh, over 400 people, about 440 people, came down with this severe respiratory illness. 44 of them died. Right at 10% of those who got it died. And you know how they stopped it? They stopped it with quarantine. And good sanitation. Uh, They had to go back to gloves and masks. And they quarantined people. At one point in Toronto, over 10,000 people were under house quarantine, where they were not allowed to be out in the public for a period of 10 days or two weeks. I don't remember the exact length of time now, but it was at least 10 days. And and it might have been two weeks. And people had to bring food and drop it off and not touch them and that sort of thing, because they had to stop that. And to be honest with you, it did not look like something that man was going to be able to stop, but the simple practice of quarantine, something that God gave Israel 3,500 years ago, was the solution to that problem. Amazing that God knew best from that time. So the second point is unclean, unclean. The third point of how health and Well-being are going to come come about in the world tomorrow, tomorrow's world. I have just simply titled The Eighth Day. The World Health Organization said this, quote, There is compelling evidence that male circumcision reduces the risk of heterosexually acquired HIV infection in men by approximately 60%. Three randomized controlled trials have shown that male circumcision provided by well-trained health professionals and properly equipped settings is safe. WHO UNAIDS recommendations emphasize that male circumcision should be considered an efficacious intervention for HIV prevention in countries and regions with heterosexual epidemics high HIV and low male circumcision prevalence. Male circumcision provides only partial protection, however. End of quote. It must be noted that if you go on the Internet, you will find that this subject is controversial, that there are strong opponents to this approach, and so it is a controversial subject. In a trip this past year to Edinburgh in Scotland... My wife and I went to one of these exhibitions where they have the human body. And it was very interesting because even in that exhibition where they have uh, actual human bodies, cadavers, and they show healthy ones and unhealthy ones, and they show the muscle structure and the blood uh, vessels and all kinds of very interesting, fascinating things about the human body. And they show various sicknesses. That it was stated in that exhibition that penile cancer is almost unheard of. And circumcised males. And I, I was struck by that because it was just one more proof that God knew what he was doing. Now, we understand that circumcision is not a spiritual matter, but in talking with individuals who are familiar with some of these things, you'll find that uh, circumcision has many benefits. We find that uh, women of Uh, Jewish descent historically have had much lower rates of cervical cancer, although that has perhaps changed in more recent years because of uh, gross uh, sexual immorality. But the transferring of certain diseases to women, certain infections have been somewhat less in circumcised males. There are a number of, of benefits to it. Now, without going further into this subject, it must be noted that physical male circumcision though not a spiritual matter, does provide benefits to both men and women who uh, practice what God gave to the children of Abraham and his children long time ago. Less disease and cancer in females, uh, less almost non-existent penile cancer among circumcised males. The fourth law that we want to discuss is, quote, I've got a problem tried to state these in such a way that maybe you can remember them. I've got a problem. Well, in 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, God gives a very simple statement through the Apostle Paul. He says here, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. It's a sin against one's own body. And it's really not hard to understand that. There was an article that came out within the last year concerning teen girls in the United States. And the article's title was that one in four teens, speaking of teen girls, has a sexually transmitted disease. Imagine, one in four. And those who admitted to being sexually active, it was something like 40% of them had an STD. Now, many of them do not know they have an STD because some of these do not show symptoms until later in life. Uh, For example, the human papillomavirus... HPV, as it's shortened, has about 30 different strains, at least four of which cause cervical cancer. And perhaps that is a connection between circumcision and and this uh, disease that it's apparently transmitted a little bit more readily to the males, and they may never know they have it, but they can pass it on to their girlfriends, their wives, their lovers, as they call them, whatever it may be, And the end result is that there there are no signs of this until they begin to have abnormal cells. And that's why they have pap smears. That's why they recommend that women have a pap smear, because they may have this condition and not know it. The drug of of choice today, I can't remember the name of it, but um, it's being advertised. They have a drug to prevent or an a, uh, inoculation to prevent HPV, four strains of HPV, because they recognize that this is a terrible scourge. Do you realize that there are more women in North America who die from cervical cancer, the result of exposure or contracting of HPV, than there are that die of AIDS? In North America, we're talking about, not other parts of the world. And yet, how many are far more fearful of AIDS than they are of HPV? But there are 30 different strains of HPV that are sexually transmitted. Some of them create what they call warts, and others are very silent. Think of all the diseases. Just think for a moment. Meditate on the consequences of those diseases that will disappear within a generation or two after the return of Jesus Christ. AIDS and HIV is a very preventable disease. And that will literally disappear from the face of this earth within a generation or two because people will have their eyes opened. Satan will be removed. We will work with them. We'll be able to say, this is the way walk you in it when they begin to go too far astray. And the end result is that that disease is going to cease it's something that we can prevent, but today we have concerts, rock concerts. I heard of one a while back here where uh, uh, Katy Perry, or uh, uh, Katy Perry I believe her name was, there's some big rock concert that was going on where they were nearly half nude and everything like that, but it was for the subject of AIDS to prevent, to, uh, to uh, generate funds for AIDS, and yet they are promoting the very kind of behavior that is the cause of it while they're trying to earn money to prevent it how bizarre this world is. And when sanity finally comes to this earth, AIDS and HIV are going to be gone. You know, AIDS is not that remote anymore. Where we live today, we had a neighbor, that we've since both moved, but we had a neighbor who was HIV positive. Not just HIV positive, but he's living in a nursing home today because his brain has been so traumatized through operations because of uh, certain complications from the whole thing, that uh, he's not exactly a vegetable, but he's not able to carry on a reasonable conversation or, or hold a job. And how sad that is. And uh, you probably know somebody that's either died of that disease or has it currently, other than some celebrity, but you may know somebody personally. I know several uh, that i've run into over the years and some that have died as a result of that and yet it is a very preventable disease currently there are at least 25 million who have died and that stat is a little bit old so it's probably significantly higher 25 million people around this world who have died of AIDS almost all of which is from violating god's law found in first corinthians the 6th chapter verse 18 and 33 million, and no doubt it's higher than that now, are living with this terrible scourge. Chlamydia, herpes, syphilis, gonorrhea, which is one of the uh, greatest causes of blindness. And God says he's going to remove blindness in more than one way. And when the spiritual blindness is removed, that physical blindness is going to be removed from being spread through improper sexual relations and, and causing gonorrhea which causes blindness in so many children that's one of the reasons that they want to put uh, silver iodine or silver whatever to oxide something in the eyes of children to prevent blindness because of sexually transmitted diseases that can be transmitted to the eyes of a child all these things are easily preventable uh, maybe I should restate that the, the answers are, are simple It's not always easy for people to avoid temptation. But when the eyes of mankind are open to the truth and Satan is removed, these diseases are going to fade away very quickly. Hepatitis C. And there are at least 20 more STDs which wreak havoc on people's bodies. They'll all be gone within a generation or two when people start really obeying God's law. And that is going to happen. In Psalm 84, Psalm 84 and verse 11, God tells us something that man really doesn't believe. It says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The eternal will give grace and glory. No good thing will be withheld from those who walk uprightly. God is not holding back good things for man. And yet we grow up from childhood believing that God doesn't want us to have any fun in life. He wants to take away all the pleasures of life. He, he, he's old-fashioned. He doesn't understand. And yet God says to hear that he holds no good thing, withholds no good thing from those who walk uprightly. When we obey God's laws, we're not kept from the good things. In fact, We have the good things, all the blessings that we have. And I'm sure that you feel that way, that you recognize the blessings that God has given to you because of the knowledge of the truth. I hope we're thankful constantly for the truth that we have and for the freedom from bondage that the world is in because of violating God's laws. God's laws are freedom. They're real freedom. Mankind. And the millennium is going to prove that. The fifth point that I'd like to make is he should have played Moses. He should have played Moses. Now, who are we talking about? Many of you have seen the movie The Ten Commandments. It's pretty old now. I don't know, maybe 40 years old. Came out in the 60s, as I recall. Uh, So, over 40 years, getting close to 50 years of age. And yet it's still a classic that many people have watched. And maybe it looks a little bit uh, archaic and amateurish compared to the kind of movies that you could have today with all the, the digital uh, computer computerization that there is. But nevertheless, it was quite a movie. And Charlton Heston played Moses. But there was another fellow who was Jewish, from Eastern Europe, by the name of Yul Brenner, and he played Pharaoh. He was always seen bald headed. He was in The King and I, and of course, that was one of his, his famous roles, and then playing Pharaoh in The Ten Commandments. Well, something that people may not be aware of is that Yule uh, Brenner, at later in life, was eating in one of the most famous restaurants in New York City called Trader Vic's. And allegedly, that is where he contracted a disease called trichinosis. Trichinosis is a result of eating pork that is not fully cooked. And it can be devastating. It can be literally deadly. And it can cause all kinds of problems. There is an article... In the Saturday evening post of one thousand nine hundred and eighty two a very interesting article that describes all of the diseases that have been uh, that the trichinosis has been misdiagnosed as rheumatic fever, scarlet fever, uh, neuritis, uh, nephritis uh, the, the list is long in fact, it says that a proper diagnosis of trichinosis is hard to come by because a list of diseases that it has been misdiagnosed as is, quote, encyclopedic. And then it lists about two paragraphs of all these diseases that people think that that's what it is, when in reality it's trichinosis. It is still a terrible scourge on the face of this earth. Many people around the world have been sickened by Trichinosis, and trichinosis is a result of eating swine's flesh that is improperly cooked. When man keeps God's laws of Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, not only are we going to be freed from trichinosis, but other diseases that come as a result. I mentioned, for example, uh, a little bit earlier, SARS. And do people realize that SARS was caused by eating an unclean animal? In fact, my sixth point is, is very simple. Civet cats and swine. Civet cats and swine. A civet cat is not a cat like we normally think of it. It looks more like a cross between a possum And a raccoon, at least that's my view of it. It's kind of a very thin raccoon-like creature. And when SARS broke out in China and began to spread around the world, health organizations wanted to find out what the cause of this was. What was the origin of the source of it? They knew it was in China. And so where do you think that they went when they were looking for the cause? They went to the city, of course, where it first broke out, where it was first seen. But where did they go when they got to the city? They went right down to the meat market. And in the meat market, they very quickly found the source it was a civet cat, an animal that is eaten in China, a delicacy. Now, if man had not been eating civet cats, if those civet cats would have been out in the woods where they belonged, not where somebody is bringing them in the butcher shop, or holding them up in little cages with other animals that maybe can transfer disease from one animal to another and, and just being around them where they can pick up these respiratory illnesses. If man had left them where they belonged, there would have been no disease transference. Forty-four people would be alive today or at least would not have died from SARS in in Canada, most of which were in Toronto area. And other Uh, hundreds of people around the world who lost their lives because of that or were severely sickened by it. This year, one of the biggest news items has been swine flu. Swine flu. And people are worried about, well, maybe if you eat it, you might catch the flu from it without realizing the mechanism that's taking place here. I'd like to uh, read from an article that uh, I brought here. This is uh, August 27th a uh, previous year, uh, not this year, uh, from New York, a Reuters news story. It says, Influenza viruses that originate in birds can acquire the ability to recognize and bind to human cells while they are in the respiratory tract of pigs, according to a new report. The findings support the notion that pigs act as mixing vessels that alter avian virus strains so that they can cause pandemics, worldwide influenza pandemics that can be potentially life-threatening to susceptible individuals. Influenza pandemics occurred in 1918, 1957, 1968, in 1977, according to the report in the September issue of the Journal of Virology. These findings help to explain the emergence of pandemic influenza viruses and support the need for continued surveillance of swine for viruses carrying avian virus genes, reported Dr. Toshihiro Ito and colleagues from research centers around the world. Bird viruses are usually 100-fold less efficient at replicating in humans and other primates, although a variety of both human and avian viruses can infect pigs. In the new study, the researchers found that cell receptors in the respiratory tract of pigs bind to both human and avian influenza viruses. The evidence we present supports the role of pigs as a source of potentially hazard influenza A viruses arising through classical genetic reassortment or a novel adaptation to human virus uh, receptors or perhaps through both mechanisms, the authors concluded. Thus, continued intensive monitoring of swine populations for avian-like influenza viruses should be an integral part of global health planning. That's from the Journal of Virology, and that was back in 1998. Now, it's interesting because people always wonder about the flu, and we, we consider that, well, I just caught the flu, and we expect that every year... A a new flu virus is going to come around, but do we realize that there's a cause for all of these diseases, and that many flu viruses are the result of people being in close proximity to pigs, which are in close proximity to birds in the barnyard, and wild birds. They give it to the tame birds, and they give it to the pigs, and then it mixes because the genetic makeup of a pig and a human is very similar, and so when it Mixes and and mutates within the pig, it can be transferred to a human being, and then thousands of people every year die as a result of influenza. And and many of these are the direct result of mixing in pigs. And so when we think of all the diseases that are going around, we, we have to understand that there's a cause for every disease. And you might not have sinned here in the sense that you, you didn't just go out and deliberately try to catch something, but somebody on the other side of the world, by violating God's law, by taking pigs out of the forest where they could eat the carry-on, the dead animals, whatever it is uh, that's out there, and just mind their own business and do their own thing. But when we bring them into the barnyard and bring them in close proximity to one another and to man and to other barn animals then that spreads a disease that quickly spreads around the world. And as happened back in 1918, uh, I've heard reports anywhere from 20 to 40 million people on this earth perished as a result of that swine flu. And that's why people are so frightened when they hear swine flu. And yet that disease began down in South Carolina. They've they've actually been able to trace it to pigs in South Carolina. It was sometimes called the Spanish flu flu. Uh, the swine flu uh, obviously was a a term for it. Uh, they thought that it started at Fort Riley, Kansas. Uh, it was spread because of the war and and soldiers, but it, it started in South Carolina, moved Fort Riley, Kansas, then spread around the world, uh, because of the war effort. But some 20 to 40 million people, depending on which authority you want to look at, died as a result of that terrible pandemic back in 1918. That was something that my father lived through. He was born before that. That's not something in remote history. It might be for our young people. But I remember in 1967 when the, the uh, we call it the Asian flu because it came from Asia at that time, that pandemic, again, related to pigs. Uh, when, when that pandemic occurred, I, I remember it as a young person because my mother wouldn't let us go to potlucks and different things like that, it kind of kept us away from, from crowds. And that was about the time that we, my father had been transferred from Morocco to England in the military, and we went over to England, and I, I still remember at that time uh, on the train going to our, our new home uh, where he was talking about it, and he, he said that uh, people are dying over here from it. And I had not heard that. Maybe my mother knew that people were dying in the United States as well, but... I, I had not heard that, and i 'll tell you a little bit more about that in a little bit because it has to do with another point but uh, that that was something that I can remember in my lifetime i don 't remember some of these later ones as much, I guess uh, they didn 't come quite as close, but that was something I remember now this year we 've got the swine flu, and everybody 's all concerned about it the potential of it because even though at the beginning it has not seemed too too uh, terrifying. They know that as happened in 1918, it didn't seem too bad, but then it, it let up in the summer and it came back in the fall with devastating effects. So, where that will be, even as you are hearing this, it's hard to say. But the end result is, again, that because we violate God's law in this world, disease occurs. And yet, when Christ comes back, that's how these things can be eliminated. Let's go back to to the book of Exodus, the 15th chapter. And this is where the title, None of These Diseases, comes from uh, for this particular sermon. It was also the title of a book by S.I. Macmillan. But here in Exodus, the 15th chapter, in verse 26, God said to Israel, If you diligently heed the voice of the Eternal, your God... And do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you, which I have brought on the Egyptians. For I am the Eternal who heals you. God is the one that heals us. But God is also the one that shows us the way to prevention from sickness. And he said, if we obey his laws diligently... He's not going to put those diseases upon us. They're not going to be there. We don't have to worry about them. But we have sickness in the world today because we have violated God's laws. The seventh point is John D. Rockefeller at death's door. John D. Rockefeller at death's door. As a young man, John Rockefeller was physically strong, and he was overly ambitious. He drove himself to a massive fortune, and by the age of 33, he had become a millionaire when being worth a million really did mean something. It was a whole lot more money then than it is today. By the age of 43, he controlled the biggest business in the world, And at 53, he was the richest man in the world and the only true billionaire. To gain this vast fortune, he had often crushed those who got in his way. He exploited the laborer to the point that his own workers in the Pennsylvania oil fields hung him in effigy. But all was not rosy for J.D. He took in... A million dollars a week. Imagine that. Income. A million dollars every single week. But his stomach and his intestines were so upset that he couldn't go out and do what you probably will do this evening or tomorrow evening. Go out to a nice restaurant, enjoy a nice juicy steak, maybe a leg of lamb of some kind, uh, lamb chops, a nice duck dinner, some sort of fish, no. John Rockefeller could only eat milk and crackers at the age of 53 because his stomach, his intestines were so torn up from stress and all kinds of problems that he could not enjoy the wealth that he had. He had to be surrounded by bodyguards. He could not sleep. He had a disease called alopecia, where the hair came out in chunks. Not only the hair on the top of his head, but his eyebrows and eyelashes were all gone. One of his biographers said he looked like a mummy. He was gaunt from weight loss. And at the age of 53, he was at death's door. One night in his despair, facing certain death, He came to a realization for the first time in his life. Number one, he was going to die. And number two, he could never take it with him. He couldn't even take a dime with him. It was all going to be gone. And so a thought came to his mind. that While he still was living, he wanted to see his vast fortune go to the right people. And so the next day, he lost no time finding worthy causes to share his wealth. He set up the Rockefeller Foundation to channel his wealth to these worthy causes, to find worthy causes that he could give his wealth to. And he tackled this task of distributing his wealth with the same degree of energy and enthusiasm that he had used to amass this great fortune that he had. An amazing transformation took place in his body. Absolutely amazing. Not only did he live to see the age of 54, but he lived to be 60, then 70, then 80. He went on to live to be 90, and finally died at the ripe old age of 98. A man who was at death's door... And in one respect, he had two lives. He had the first half of his life, to gain for himself. The second half of his life, sure, he made money, but he helped others. And if he had only known God's simple law, early on, Acts 20 and verse 35, a very simple law that we take for granted, Acts 20 and verse 35, We read this, in fact, it's often read when we take up an offering during these holy days. It says, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this, that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You know, John D. Rockefeller was living proof of that law that is more blessed to give than receive. When he was getting for himself, when he was doing the very thing that Mr. Armstrong said, you know, there are two ways of life. There's get and give. He was on the get side. And when he was on the get side, it was literally killing him. And when he began to give, God gave him life. Because it was a law. A law set in action. There, there was an article that came out in a... Uh, a, a a Canadian paper, uh, about a year ago. And it said, want to be happy? The happiest people? Give your money away. And and it went on to show they had done a number of experiments, and one of the experiments was that they took a control group, and half of them they gave anywhere from 5 to $20, and they said, go out and give this money away you've got a day to do it but find a worthy cause give this money away then they took the other half and they gave them either five to twenty dollars and they said go out and spend this on something that you really like find something you really like and then at the end of the day they interviewed them uh, very intensely and they found that those who had given their money away were actually happier than those who had spent it on themselves And they did a number of experiments like that, and they 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 came to the conclusion that the happiest people in the world, and there are other studies that say, well, the happiest people are in this country or that country or some other country, but the bottom line was, in this particular study, they said that the happiest people were those who had money and those who gave it away. Now, of course, we can apply this to our time as well as money. I mean, not everybody has a lot of money to just be throwing around, but they found that even as little as $5 given to someone else in good in good conscience uh, was enough to make a person happier than someone who spent as much as $20 on himself. Very interesting study. And John D. Rockefeller proved that in his life, that it was more blessed to give than to receive. So when you're unhappy when things aren't going well for you, start thinking about how can I give of myself? And in tomorrow's world, Mr. Herbert Armstrong is going to be there, I'm convinced. And I am sure he's going to be teaching some people, some place, some way, nation, whatever it may be, whatever his position is, that there are two ways of life. And people during that time are going to, be under, are going to understand it, that it's best, better to give than to receive. And the give way of life is much more rewarding. To give you an idea how this can work, we used to have teen dances back in the the Kansas City area. And some of our young people would remember this. But whenever we had a dance, I would try to get the young fellows off together before the dance. I'd say, look, look, guys, you know, if you want to have a good time here, the way to do it is to give the girls a good time. Dance with all of the girls. Really show them a good time. Let them know that you're thinking about them. If you're out dancing and you see a girl that doesn't have somebody to dance with this time, you go over and dance with her, and you take care of the girls, and they're going to be happy. And if they're happy, I guarantee you're going to be happy. You know, we had some of the most wonderful dances as a result of that. And there there were several young fellows. They probably know who I'm talking about because they're they're in the church. I think I can think about three of them real quick. And I always said to them, you know, you guys have to take the lead. You, you, you're the leaders here. You, you set the example for the other fellows. And you know, we had wonderful dances there among the teens because they weren't just out there off by themselves. When I was a young person going to dances, it was always about some individual, some girl. And I can remember some very unhappy dances because I didn't get the girl, so to speak. Somebody else, she was more interested in somebody else. I didn't get to dance with the girl that I really wanted to. And I was unhappy. Didn't know why. But instead of giving, I was getting, trying to get. And as a result, I was losing in the long run. Dr. Meredith has quoted on more than one occasion in the past year or so from S.I. McMillan's book, None of These Diseases. You may remember the quote that he is is given there. It's not not what you are eating, but it's what's eating you. And and I think it will do us well to analyze that a little bit, to think about that. Today we are troubled with many self-induced stresses, stresses that we induce upon ourselves. Years ago there was an article written in the church's publications called, There is a Hidden Enemy in Your Home. And what it was talking about was emotional immaturity. The fact that many of us never grow up emotionally. We grow up physically. We have a big adult-sized body. But emotionally, we're still children. We pitch a fit when we don't get our own way. We get all upset because things are not going the way we want them to go. Many people never grow up emotionally and spiritually. This is something we're going to have to teach the people in the millennium. That they have to control their emotions. That they have to learn to, to keep them under control. But today people still act as children. They take refuse, I'm sorry, they refuse to take responsibility for their actions. They mentally curse others who get in their way. They fly off the handle at the slightest provocation. They feed on negative things instead of the things that are positive, uplifting, and beautiful, as God tells us to do. They refuse to take responsibility for their own stress, and they would rather blame someone else. Well, it's my red hair, or it's my Irish temperament. You know, that's an excuse. There's no doubt about it that some people are more emotional than others just by nature. There's no doubt about that. But if we allow wrong emotions, there's nothing wrong with being emotional in a positive way, but if we allow those emotions to, you know, wrath and anger and this type of thing to take over in our lives, then we pay a price for it. But we would rather say, well, this is the way I am. Rather than try to change what I am. And we're going to have to teach people, because we've had to learn it ourselves, that we can control our emotions, that we can change. This excuse of, this is the way I am, and, you know, this is the way I'll always be, doesn't cut anything with God. That's what we're here to do, is to change. And in the millennium, when people grow up in an intact home, when they have a mother and father in the home and they're taking care of their proper roles and they're teaching children to control their emotions and to take charge of that and to grow and overcome and have a relationship with God and have God's Spirit to help them to be able to do so, it's going to be a very different place. We're not going to have the kind of road rage that goes on on the highways as we have it today. When two people are faced with the exact same problem... One gets stressed out and the other stays calm. Why? Why does one react one way and the other react the other way? Well, one has chosen to change, to grow up emotionally. The other has chosen to stay an emotional child. It's just that simple. It's a choice in life. We can't just blame our heritage Or blame something else. And again, we're not denying the fact that some people have a greater struggle with this than others. There's no doubt about that. But we all have to learn to control our emotions. The result is a life full of stress and boiling emotions that that we bring upon ourselves. The result of this chronic toxic stress damages the mind and the body. It produces disease that ranges from heart problems to cancer to chronic gastrointestinal afflictions, as happened to John D. Rockefeller. It ages a person prematurely. Now, how do we know that? How do we know that it does those very things? Have you ever thought of what happens up here? As Mr. Meredith said, in quoting uh, uh, McMillan. He says, not what you're eating, but it's what's eating you. What's going on? Have we ever thought of what's going on up here and how it affects the rest of the body? Here are three ways that what goes on up here affects the rest of the body. Blood flow. It actually affects the blood flow. It can affect blood pressure, as an example. And that can be damaging in itself. But the the simplest way to prove that it affects blood flow is take some nice young lady and embarrass her. Now, don't do that. But we all know what happens. She turns red. And sometimes fellows do too. They blush because the blood flows to the face. Now, is that some awful, terrible thing? Well, probably not. But when we have a, a situation where the blood flow is affected chronically and constantly over a long period of time. It's happening because things are happening in the body that can be toxic in the long run. It affects muscle contraction. Have you ever been in heavy traffic and you, quote, fight the traffic all the way home? And maybe you say to your wife or to your husband, uh, could you give me a back rub because I'm, I'm all uptight? because your muscles are tight, and maybe you've got a headache as a result of it. Many people get headaches because of stress, stress stress-induced headaches. And that kind of stress can affect us in many other ways. I mentioned earlier the time that I found out about that flu pandemic, or I knew about it, but the time my father said to my mother, we were on the train there in England someplace, and he said, you know, there are people dying over here because of it. You know what happened to me? I began to think about that. I was about 11 years old at the time, and it scared me as a young fellow. And I thought, wow, I could die if I catch the flu. And, you know, I got so worked up about that that I had to go into the bathroom and throw up. That wasn't the first time it happened. It was only about a year earlier. My mother bought my, my sister and I a canary. Uh, We always wanted a dog or a cat or something bigger, but we always had goldfish or birds. And so we had this canary. And it wasn't long after we had gotten it that one day it just started flying around, fluttering around the cage, and then it just went to the bottom of the cage with its feet up in the air and kind of kicking a little bit and quivering. And we wondered what was wrong with the bird. And after a little while, it, it kind of came out of it and was normal for a while. Well, it did this several times, and one day it happened when a neighbor was over at the house, and she was talking with my mother about it, and they were speculating that maybe the bird has parrot fever, and parrot fever can be transmitted to human beings, and they can die. Well, this is my memory of the conversation, and on that occasion, I got so worked up, fearful of what might happen that I literally threw up. Now, it affects, what goes on up here affects the rest of the body. There are people who are frightened because of somebody else's illness, maybe where they have a tumor or something, and they literally have tumors. I I knew of a case where a woman, a very close friend of hers, had uh, cancer, and, and pretty soon she started having these bumps on her neck, literally came up. And it was all fear-induced, all psychosomatic. Now, the effects were very real. When you throw up, that's very real. When you have a headache, it's very real. We're talking about what is the cause of it. So it can affect blood flow, muscle contraction, and endocrine functions, such as the secreting of hormones and other products directly into the blood. Now, adrenaline is very important, and we need it. But too much adrenaline all the time can wear out the body. When we speak for the first time in front of a crowd, oftentimes we get dry mouth and we start perspiring underneath the arms. Not because it's hot, but because we're nervous. You see, what goes on up here begins to affect the rest of the body. Now, there are laws of God that we can look at that tell us that we need to control what goes on up here. Let's notice in Colossians, the third chapter, Colossians 3. We don't often think of this in terms of sickness, the cause of sickness, but in Colossians 3, in verse 8, it says, "...but now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Now notice, anger, wrath, and malice. Malice is is wrong thinking toward others. It's it's, it's, uh, thinking evil toward others. Do we realize that those who are in a chronically angry or wrathful state, their health is affected? Let me give you an example. Have you ever gotten angry at someone? something happened at work, something happened with your neighbor, maybe it was even your husband or your wife or your kids, and you got so angry, you lay in bed there, and you think, oh, this is what I should have said. This is how I should have handled it. This is what I would do if I had to do it over again. And you just stew on it, and it goes over and over in your mind. And you're tired, and you're worn out, and you want to go to sleep, but you can't shut the mind off. That affects our health. And there are some people who are chronically angry, chronically contentious, and it affects their health. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. In other words, we are to change. We're not to stay angry. We're not to be wrathful. We're not to have malice in our hearts toward others, and these things affect the way that that our, our bodies react. Notice in Galatians, the fifth chapter, speaking of the fruits of the Spirit and the fruits of the flesh. We'll start with the fruits of the flesh. He says in verse 19, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. Okay. And we've already seen that some of those things can cause disease. But notice verse 21, it says, Envy. Have you ever heard of someone who is green with envy? Envy. You can actually turn green from sickness. I remember one time when my sister-in-law went up in a stunt plane. And you know, the, the, the pilot was doing loop-de-loops and hammerhead uh, rolls and, and uh, barrel rolls and all kinds of things. And when she came down, her face had a green tinge to it. And I got thinking, boy, I don't know if I want to go up here. But I did, and everything was okay. Okay. But we use the expression green with envy. A person who is, is very envious makes himself sick. And not that everybody just turns green every time, but there, there's a reason why that expression has, has been created, no doubt. We can make ourselves sick with what we think. As it says here, envy. Uh, as one of them there, uh, let me go back, uh, verse 20, idolatry, sorcery, hatred. There are people who have hatred in their heart, and it affects their physical well-being. Contentions. Have you ever known someone who's always contentious? Every time you talk to that person, you end up in an argument with them. You don't end up that way with anybody else, but that person, you're always in an argument, and you talk to somebody else, and they say, yeah, every time I talk to that person, within 10 minutes, we're in an argument. That's not a healthy condition. John D. Rockefeller lived in a world of contention, a world of ambition, selfish ambition. And it brought him to death's door, as we've already seen. But it says here, uh, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions. That That was exactly what John D. Rockefeller's problem was. And by age 53, he was at death's door. And when he got his mind off himself and started thinking about others, he lived to ninety-eight, as we've already seen. Envy is mentioned in verse twenty-one, but notice the fruits of the spirit: love. That's a positive emotion. It's more than an emotion; it's an action. But joy is certainly an emotion. Peace. Have you ever had a meal where there's uh, there's contention? Perhaps it is a a matter of uh, when you were a child and your your father corrected you or threatened to give you a spanking after dinner because he knew that you had done something and, boy, you're just not really comfortable during the meal. You're upset. Your stomach is upset. It, It affects you, doesn't it, in a very negative way? Peace builds health. The opposite of peace destroys health. Long suffering. In other words, patience, where we have, we're willing to, to be patient with other people's shortcomings. All this has to do with how we react to other people. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, as opposed to being out of control. One of my favorite stories is a man by the name of uh, Sidney Harris, a Sydney Caden columnist. And he, he tells about going uh, to New York City and visiting a friend and they got up that morning and his friend said hey let's go down and get a newspaper and so he went down to a newsstand on the corner where uh, near where this man lived and when he did so the the uh, newspaper vendor there was rather uh, difficult with him he uh, was rude to him uh, talked to him roughly and Sidney Harris's friend was very polite back to him. And as they were walking away, Sidney Harris said to his friend, he said, boy, he was rude to you. And his friend said, well, he, yeah, he's, he's always that way. He said, really? And he said, you were so polite back to him. He said, yes. He said, well, why were you so polite to him when he was so rude to you? And his friend said something very profound. He said, because I don't want him determining what kind of person I'm going to be. You see, he recognized that if he reacted to this man the way he reacted to him, that that man had control of him. That that man was determining what kind of a person he would be. You know, that's self-control. Not allowing somebody to take control of you in that way, but you have self-control. Those gentleness, self-control, against such there is no law. Back in Proverbs, the 17th chapter, Proverbs 17 and verse 22, this is a proverb that sometimes we read, and I don't know if we really take it seriously enough. It says here, a merry heart does good like a medicine. Have we ever thought of it in the context of this seventh point that I'm giving? That a merry heart really does do good like a medicine. It it picks us up. Have you ever been sick and somebody comes over and you get talking and laughing and joking, you forget that you're sick? It does good like a medicine. It picks you up. But a broken spirit dries the bones. It dries the bones. Notice the 15th chapter, verse 13. It says, A merry heart makes a cheerful countenance, but by sorrow of the heart the spirit is broken. By sorrow of heart the spirit is broken, a broken spirit. Verse 16, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with trouble. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fatted calf with hatred. By simply learning how to react to those around us. With love, with kindness, practicing these things in our very families today, we'll be able to teach a new generation, a new world, the benefits of these things. We'll be able to say, you can do this because I had to learn it myself. We're here to be teachers, but we've got to first do it ourselves. We've got to learn to control ourselves. We've got to learn to have love and joy and be able to sit down to a meal and have it peaceable as opposed to contentious. Verse 18, A wrathful man stirs up strife, But he who is slow to anger allays contention. Let's go over to Philippians 4. Philippians 4. Here's what God tells us to do. He says, finally, brethren. Well, let me start with verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. Don't always be anxious, always worrying about what you don't have, what, what's not there. My wife and I one time had been saving up for uh, the money to recover a chair that we had, and, and finally we had saved up enough money, and so we got some samples from one of the members in the church who was an upholsterer, and, and he was going to do it for us, and we started looking at them, and and the only thing we really both liked together because one liked one thing, one liked. But when we found something we liked, it clashed with the curtains. And then we began looking around and saying, well, you know, the lamps that we have, that's not really what we really wanted, but they were kind of given to us. And we started thinking about after that, well, then we'd have to get something else here. And then from the living room, we started thinking about the dining room and the, the bedroom, because we just had old furniture that had been given to us when we first got married. And you know we went from being so happy that we could finally cover this chair to thinking what we didn 't have, and we worked ourselves into depression. A wonderful lesson you know we we need to think positive things because what goes on up here's not what's, what 's what we 're eating more often than not it 's what 's eating us that affects the rest of our body and so he says here. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. So bring your concerns to God and leave them with Him. Know that He'll take care of them in due time. And the peace of God, real, genuine peace, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, this is a command, really, He says, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just and pure and lovely and of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. We've only begun to scratch the surface today of the laws of God that promote good health and of the violation of which produces sicknesses we haven't discussed the misuse of alcohol and drugs nor touched on chemical pollutants that are all around us nor have we discussed refined foods such as sugars and grains that are refined or exercise or moderation in food intake but I think you can get the point if we take all of God's Word God's laws of what he tells us, the way that we are to live, it removes so much sickness. Sicknesses will fade away. God is not going to just magically make people healthy for a thousand years. He's given us his laws. We will be teaching those laws, not just about not eating pigs, but about how we live our lives, how we control our emotions how we conduct ourselves in in all aspects of life. And when people learn to live that way, the way that God has instructed us to live, then we can see that so many of the diseases that we have today will just quickly disappear. And others will be somewhat rare, I imagine. Who knows whether... I'm sure that God made the body so that it can fight off sickness and people are going to violate God's law to some degree. It's not going to be perfect. But I think we can get the point that the, the chronic disease that we have today, the awful afflictions we have today, God says, or said to Moses, none of these diseases, he's going to remove them. From time to time, we have articles in Tomorrow's World. We had one in a uh, recent one, uh, was it uh, uh, April, May or May, June, Tomorrow's World by, by Dr. Winnell on good health, health laws, we need to take these and we need to put them in practice because good health can happen. There is a cause for it, and we need to practice those laws. And as we, uh, as we had a, a lesson devoted to the subject in the leadership training class as well, and we need to take those things seriously. Can you imagine if the whole world set about to really obey God's laws, what a healthy place this would be? Well, that's exactly what's coming, not too many years hence. That is the future that we are preparing for. We are preparing today. We are remembering today during this festival season that there are laws that God has given to us that will promote good health. So let us prepare to do so by practicing those laws today.